Blog Talk Radio. Okay, sorry about that uh, mishap with the audio, folks. My computer's lagging a little bit tonight. Hello, I'm your old pal, the King of Horror, Andy G, welcoming you back to this episode of Talking Terror Presents. Tonight, it is my pick. We're talking about Martin from 1977, directed by the late, great George A. Romero. So welcome back. It's Wednesday. We're so excited that you're here with us once again for low-rent podcasters and shenanigans. Like I said at the top, I'm your old pal, King Har Andy G. And with me, as always, is the bold, the beautiful, not your Aquaman, the Golgi Keith. Martin, what is up, everybody? How are you doing tonight, Ghoul? I'm okay, man. You totally threw me off without having our musical cue and everything, man. Like, I was waiting to hear that, and I hear it. It didn't happen. And yeah, now I, I, I it, feel uh, odd. I hit it at the start, but it just kept looping, and it wasn't starting. So I was like, fuck, all right. So guess I got to go in fresh, go for the cold opening, and just go for it. So I apologize if you guys are looking forward to hearing that intro. But hopefully by next week, uh, the kinks will be worked out. I don't know. Uh, I guess Block Talk is being a little bit laggy tonight. But The intro is playing. I hear it. Yeah, I put it on very faintly. So you probably could hear it in the background. I can't hear it. So I put it on as low as I possibly could. Let it run its course. Because I tried to hit stop and it wouldn't stop either. So, so enjoy that little uh, mellow music in the background. Welcome, Doc. How are you? It's like, it's like elevator music. Oh, I'm, I'm delightful. Excellent, excellent. And we're also joined, fresh out the cage, out of tapioca, ready to kick some ass. The Mad Monkey. Pineapple. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boils and ghouls, blah, blah, blah. blah. We need some intro music. <laughs> What's my safe word? <laughs> Booty old man. Wrinkled <laughs> pickle, that's the safe word tonight. <laughs> Is that Wandersex? <laughs> hey, I got my t-shirt. <laughs> Scotty doesn't know. <laughs> Scotty still doesn't know. <laughs> no. Scotty, no. Scotty never knows, man. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> he even did it on his birthday. He just doesn't know. But welcome, Monkey. Glad to have you back. And I'm glad to be back. Looking for another fun-filled, fright-filled episode of Talking Terror. Yeah! Talk about Martin. Martin. What up? What Oh, wait. What up? Martin. <laughs> Martin. I would take that. Martin Lawrence. Oh, That'd be awesome. <laughs> that is what I found no matter what search engine I put this into. Um, you know, it took me a while to find the film. I ended up just having to watch it on YouTube free. Um... You know me, I always like to purchase the movies so that this way I, uh, I'm doing my, my due diligence and yeah. uh, and paying the proper proper channels for, for the product I am watching. And uh, But no, Martin is not available through Amazon or fucking Xbox or any of those. Uh, I did look. I, I did check it out, but uh, very hard to find. So luckily I was able to find a YouTube, uh, you know, which is a good quality uh, YouTube video. I have the movie on DVD, 
and I wanted to find a copy for everybody to watch. So I figured YouTube was the best route to go, especially if you can't find it on digital. But uh, not disappointed. But we'll talk about it later on in the show. Um, before we get to the doc and what he has for Horror Talk tonight, I wanted to talk about uh, something that happened earlier this week. Uh, a 90s icon, if you will, passed away at the age of 52, Luke Perry. A lot of you guys might know from 90210 as Dylan. Uh, I knew him from Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, with Christy Swanson, but I also knew him most recently as Fred Andrews on Riverdale, which is one of my favorite shows right now. But uh, I wanted to open the show up with that because I know you guys are a little bit older than I am, so you were around for the 90210 original run when it was first on, and all the girls are going crazy for Jason Priestley and Luke Perry and Shannon Doherty. Uh, I still feel like, you know, 52, very young, but iconic of Luke Perry. You know, you recognize the name, you recognize the actor. So, you know, what did, uh, you know, your thoughts on Luke Perry? I have very, well, not thoughts on Luke Perry, but thoughts on the Beverly Hills 90210 uh, cultural phenomenon as a whole, uh, because I'm pretty sure uh, this erupted when I was a sophomore in high school, and there was a, it was like one night uh, you had never heard of this thing. And then the next day it was like every single girl in the entire school was obsessed and their lockers already were covered uh, with pictures of all of these performers. Um, You know, the thing was massive. And I remember like in school, this is like a funny thing that I remember. And I would venture to guess that there are some people that have similar uh, ideas about it, but I distinctly remember like me and all my buddies being like, Oh man, this sucks. This show is so stupid. And all these girls are just in love with this. But like what we wouldn't say is that we were all at home watching the show. Uh, you know, <laughs> also, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I have no problem admitting that, uh, you know, I was a watcher of Beverly Hills 90210. Um, you know, uh, I was into it. I watched it. Uh, I didn't stick with it all the way through its uh, lifetime. Um, mm. But, you know, Luke Perry was an iconic uh, figure there. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it's sad to see him go at such a young age so suddenly. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Uh, listen, to, to similar to the doc, um I don't remember, well, I guess not similar to that. I don't remember Bev just popping up out of nowhere. I actually watched the uh, the premiere. Uh, it's like, a, like I just called it. It was Bev. You know what I mean? Like as far as the, the chicks and everybody that I was hanging out with at the time, that's what they called it. You know, what were they watching, mm-hmm. you know, that week? Well, what happened on this week's episode of Bev? Um, later, yes, it became known as just, you know, known by the numbers, uh, especially when the, uh, the the show came on again. Uh, on the CW, which was known as 90210 only without the uh, the Beverly Hills moniker. But, you know, back at that point, yes, Bev was uh, all the rage. You know, it popped up. I remember the premiere of the show. I remember watching it. Uh, you know, the, the whole tale of Brenda and her, uh, her twin brother. Uh, I always forget his name. Um, but, but yes, the Brenda Dylan and then Brandon, later the Brenda Kelly and Dylan Brandon, and Brandon, Brandon, yes, Brenda, Brenda and Brandon. Brandon. Uh, I was never I was a Brandon to, fan. I fuck. I, I, I was about to say actor. Luke, but then I was like, wait, no, that's the uh, that's uh, that's the actor. That's, that's <laughs> Harry's name. Yeah, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, but the Brenda Dillon storyline was something that went on for, for quite some time. And, yes, eventually it became uh, Dillon and Kelly, and it was Brandon and Kelly and all kinds of fucking – it would have been great if they eventually did Brandon and Brenda. But, you know, I guess the society wasn't ready for that kind of shit yet, um, unlike the porn <laughs> industry now. I remember, too, they uh, They already did that in time for its, for its time for teenage shows in its, in its time. Uh, they also tackled um, – you know, they had – you know, serious issues. You know, they had the kid that that shot himself, and uh, yep. they explored they explored like uh, uh, eating disorders and like drug use and and things of of that nature. Which you know, for the time that that show was on, uh, you know, not it wasn't commonplace for those things to be explored. Not necessarily true. I mean, they covered things that we saw on after-school specials on a weekly mm-hmm. television drama. Yeah, um, but after, you know, after it was just that these like characters were contiguous to it. Yeah. yeah. I always mm-hmm. saw after-school sketch specials because there are there are several that I remember mm-hmm. so distinctly. Uh, I always saw those as kind of like like warnings to kids, like cautionary tales, more than like entertainment. Um, if you will, all, there are several. All there are of those episodes of, the, of 90210 had PSAs after them. So the gun control well, you need to and have with the, the eating disorders with the, and all that yeah. stuff. Well, with the influence that show had on the youth, like you, you had to because the kids were. I mean, that shit was insane. I, was, I mean, I was. I remember when this stuff would happen, and I was just reading a thing about uh, uh, Luke Perry yesterday. Uh, talking about there was going to be, you know, like they had appearances at like shopping malls and they were anticipating maybe like a thousand people and there'd be like 10,000 people, riots, people tearing the malls apart. Um, <laughs> you know, they had to have those PSAs, man. People went crazy around that stuff. <laughs> well, I'm saying though, similar to the after school special where, you know, again, like you said, after school specials were warnings for, for us as youth and whatnot and for parents who watch them as well. Um, those same episodes that had those serious issues had to have those PSAs for that very purpose, because similar to an after-school special, it served as a warning, you know? Obviously, don't fucking shoot yourself with a gun. You know, don't play with loaded weaponry. You know, don't don't have an eating disorder type of deal. Um, but yes, it did explore topics that, that were relevant at the time. I mean, you know, we knew people personally um, that, you know, I know of me and you, Doc, that were bulimic um, yeah. and went through, you know, much, much hardship with that kind of shit. So. And also some lunatics running around shooting guns all over the place. No, no. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, it's sad to see this guy go. You know, it's interesting because uh, he arguably at that time was like the the rocket star, like like superstar from that show. And uh, you know, he post nine oh two one oh during nine oh two one oh like kind of would appear just in kind of strange offbeat projects. Uh, never really seemed to be attracted to projects to cash in on that popularity. And uh, one of the things that I had read uh, based on some of his most recent work, younger actors that have gotten to work with him, I guess he's on that uh, Riverdale show. Uh, yeah, I don't watch that is. show. Um, but, every, but, but the statements from coworkers and people that have worked for him as he's as an older man now say that he is just the most humble, genuine, generous, nicest person that just has the most incredible stories about fame 
and and like the most like humorous eyes to look at at that fame through. Um, so yeah, it was just it was, and he's he's a family man, a bunch of kids and everything. And as I was reading, uh, you know, again, you know, not someone who I can sit here and say, oh my god, I was such a big fan, but. I was definitely part of the generation that was culturally impacted by his work in a huge way, and it's sad to see him go. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, uh, Monkey, what do you think about the passing with Derek? Yeah, same thing. Is like I was one of those closet uh, watchers, you know, didn't tell anyone. You know, I watched it in my, you know, while making the jokes, just like everyone else said. You know, I'd be up in my bedroom watching it on my little 11-inch black and white TV in my bedroom, you know, you know, and while there were lots of thoughtful things that went on in the show, also there were lots of fun episodes that went on. You know, I, I still specifically remember the one episode where Brandon lost his virginity, and I remember the song um, Hippie Chick by the band Soho playing in the background the whole time they were having sex. Um, <laughs> you know, and him talking about how it's okay to talk to your parents about sex afterwards. Um <clears throat> And there were lots of good moments, and it was it was just fun nighttime drama, um, you know. But also, Luke Perry was, you know, as small as his role was in the film, you know, he is, you know, forever anchored in my heart for cinema just because of the very small role that he played in one of my favorite science fiction movies, The Fifth Element. Um, <laughs> he he was only in the movie for like five minutes for his. But for some reason, I guess because at the time he was still so big, he had like, you know, opening billing on the opening credits. You know, it actually says Luke Perry on the opening credits of The Fifth <laughs> Element. <laughs> He's only in there for five minutes. Um, but, yeah, and, you know, it's sad to see him go, especially because, like, you and I talked about, King, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the show Riverdale takes this news and figures out a way to creatively move forward with the show. I agree. Um, Cause he is the supporting character on Riverdale. He's Archie's dad. Uh, but I just watched a new episode tonight and he has a very, very small appearance at the end, but it's one of those things where you see him now and you know, he's gone. So it kind of adds that weird kind of element where it's, you know, he's not with us anymore. And you kind of wonder how he's going to carry on with the show uh, how they're going to handle his departure, you know, how uh, respectfully they're going to be able to do it. I think that's what's going to be interesting to see. With yes. Uh, I mean, I'm making... always a fan of, listen, if the, if the actor is actually gone, um, obviously his season's already done. So, you know, you're going to continue whatever you're going to do with this season. It's Archie's dad, but, you know, what better time to tackle something in a teenager's life than the death of a parent than to just simply have him die between seasons and actually yeah. use that as an integral part of your next season. You know, I know some people might think that's tacky and whatnot, but I think mm-hmm. it's a way to actually tackle a very real thing that kids and people deal with. And if done right, you know, it can be done without it being tacky, and you can actually pay some real respect to not only the actor, but to the actual situations themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think you hit right on the head. Um, On the show, the character himself, he has been shot twice, near death twice, uh, and lived. But this time, like the Gullet said, it's possible that they could have it be that way, where between seasons, he he, somehow he passed, Um, and then you carry on. Uh, Molly Ringwald plays Archie's mom, so I'm thinking they might bring her on 
for more of a supporting role as the parent, you know, so we'll have to see how they do that. Uh, but what was interesting to me is I put it on the Talking Terror page on Facebook about Luke Perry's passing earlier this week, and it was amazing to see the outpouring of people that uh, shared the V article, uh, commented on it. But a lot of people all had the same thing to say about Luke Perry was that he was such a kind and humble person. He wasn't Mr. Hollywood. You know, he wasn't beyond uh, helping people and being just kind to others and just being down to earth and not thinking he was above anything. And I thought that was really kind of cool to read these comments on our Facebook page and see all these people saying about how genuine of a person he was. Like, he never took what he had for granted, as big as known to one of us. It never got to his head. No, yeah, well, I mean, again, right. you know, he's, he's one of those who always seemed to to fall more into the art. And, you know, I don't know if it was a matter of just not having much, you know, listen, I don't want to, you know, not not meaning to say it in a means of disrespect to the actor himself. But right. considering that the majority of things that I've seen him in, it was pretty much always the same character, um, mm-hmm. just different names. Uh, you know, there may not have been much else for him to do other than just be the person that he is. And I'm not saying that there is nowhere for actors like that. You know, I look at an actor like, you know, and obviously, yes, we've seen Nick Cage do do things that are different. But for the most part, you take an actor like Nick Cage and you could put him in a thousand movies. And some of those movies, Nick Cage is going to work. Some of those movies, Nick Cage is not. But for the most part, you're going to get the exact same performance from Nick Cage. Um, oh, well, man. Every Jason Statham movie, man. <laughs> yeah. uh, no. This is true. Uh, well, except if you ever want, if you want to watch something with Jason Statham that can make you laugh, watch In the Name of the King. It's a really bad fantasy fucking movie from oh, like the I've, mid mid nineties uh, or so. There's I've like uh, there's, there's fucking oh. beast men running away with goats, and it's fucking hysterical. They look like they're about to go <laughs> fuck them somewhere. Um, there are people <laughs> raping and pillaging and grabbing human beings, and then you see two of these guys take take goats and go run off in the <laughs> other direction. Like, it's completely one of those where it's off to the side. It doesn't make any sense why it's happening, except, like, maybe these guys were just doing it to be funny. <laughs> but, but, yeah, well, you're right. It's a horrible movie with uh, really bad, like, modern fighting techniques and something that's supposed to take place in a very ancient, forgotten world. And all of the fighting sequences seem so out of place compared to the rest of the movie. <laughs> well, Okay. Uh, so, moving away from that, uh, Doc, I want to hand over the driver's seat to you uh, to talk about some horror news that you might have for us. Uh, so, what do you have? All right. So, first thing I want to talk about tonight, uh, if you think back, I believe back in September, I reported on a teaser trailer uh, being released by a group that was releasing what they're calling the definitive 1980s horror documentary. Uh, that was going to be titled In Search of Darkness. Uh, mm-hmm. They had yeah. put this together through, uh, you know, crowdfunding campaigns. <laughs> and uh, as they are getting ready for uh, the anticipated release uh, at this time in May of 2019, they have put out a full-length trailer uh, for In Search of Darkness. And this is one that I am truly looking forward to when you watch this trailer it just screams everything that was like bizarrely wonderful about the eighties, both in horror and in society. So uh, if you've been following the saga of in search of darkness as I have, 
Uh, it was very exciting news to see the full-length trailer today. I did. I watched it. I, I can't wait. It was a blast from the past. See all these clips and all the people that were in the movies, that starred in them, that directed them, that wrote them. You know, it's definitely a, a documentary that I think people like us, who are huge fans of that era of horror, are going to really enjoy. Because it, it's made by fans for the fans. So I'm really looking now, uh, forward to this documentary. Now, do you know if this is going to be just a documentary movie, or is this going to be a documentary series? As far as I know, this is a one-shot deal. Yeah. Just a, oh, a one-shot okay. movie. Yeah, documentary. So not a series. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of okay. like Hard Noir, where it's just a one-shot, hour and a half, two hour, whatever it is, a documentary. Oh, okay. So it's a, it's a feature-long documentary. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. So moving from that, uh, Doc, what's that like? Um, uh, being that uh, we are going to be covering a George Romero film this evening, one of his frequent collaborators, uh, Tom Savini, is uh, no release date at this point in time, but he is promising what he is calling a gigantic coffee table photobiography book uh, that will be simply titled Savini, uh, that will be a full documentation of his entire career. Uh, It is known that he was a meticulous documenter of all of his work on all of the sets that he worked on, and uh, he is going to be putting out, in his words, a gigantic coffee table book uh, to celebrate his career. And uh, I would imagine that many of us are going to be looking forward to checking that out. Yeah, I'm definitely buying it when it comes out, because I saw that on Bloody Disgusting. Uh, I know it's supposed to be a gigantic coffee table type book, and I can't wait to add that to my collection, because like you had said, Doc, he was meticulous when it came to behind-the-scenes footage, uh, from videos to photos. He captured everything. Like He left nothing to chance when it came to documenting everything he was doing. So to get a book with all those pictures, yeah, I'm definitely going to be adding that. I mean, what if you want to put it on your, in, like, in your bookshelf or something? Why has it got to be a coffee table? That's not gonna I mean, because then you, can have it out, then you can have it out on display uh, for all of the visitors to see, uh, like, all of the horror coffee table books that I have yeah. hidden away uh, that are not allowed to be on display. Yeah, I have a couple myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a, a couple I, I don't have myself, visitors. Like, so, <laughs> I and no I don't have a yeah. anything out. And I don't have a coffee table. <laughs> See, I do. And the monkey you knows know, I, I don't do. either. That's <laughs> a good point. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> is the is the is this giant book big enough to be, become a coffee table? I, from what <laughs> I understand, I that I don't think that you need to actually have a coffee table book or drink coffee in order to get a coffee table book. No, I drink coffee, but I do so without a coffee table. Um, I mean, how much coffee coffee does a coffee table hold? I mean, you should just get a rib cage and make a rib cage into a coffee table goal. I would love that. I would buy a rib cage table. I'd buy that right now. You could make a lampshade out of durable skin, too. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) I'd get that. The shoehorn out of your skin. Ed Gein had a talent that was missed. So if he was still alive today, we all have human lampshades. Oh, he, he, he would have, like, his own design line at Ikea. He would have lazy boys made out of skin. He would have everything. It would be impressive. Like, this is from the Ed Dean line, my, uh, my lazy boy. <laughs> now showcased at Sears, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
For $59.99, this human lampshade could be yours. Mm. With alternate faces. Ooh, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah, but either way, yeah, I do have a coffee table. The monkey knows I have a coffee table with jack-o'-lanterns on it. I have my serial killer book on there. So, yeah. I don't get many visitors. Monkey's the only one. So I can put whatever, whatever the fuck I want. Try to widen your oh social gosh. circle there, man. What's that, Doc? <laughs> So widen that social hey, circle a little over there in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I don't think anybody really wants to come over, you know, especially when they look at my apartment. I think I would scare a lot of people away with the amount of stuff I have in my apartment that's horror-related. I love it. It's a fun – it's a cute little horror museum all on its own. <laughs> <laughs> there is something on every wall. <laughs> there's got to be, there's gotta be some macabre horror chicks out in your neck of the woods, No. I'm sure there are, but they're hiding in their little cabins in the middle of the woods, slowly <laughs> killing somebody while they're listening to our podcast. <laughs> with their, they're just waiting for the king to find them with his chloroform, you know? You know, I'm too fat to kidnap. It's going to take a lot of time for them to try to kidnap me. <laughs> they're going to need like five people to carry my jet fat ass into a van. Right? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. He's too heavy. <laughs> Leave his ass inside of the road. And why do you have to live on the top floor? <laughs> God damn it, why does he have to live on the third floor? So and you live steps, on the fourth, first floor? He's so much more convenient. <laughs> okay. So well, what's next? So, so, yeah, what is next? Uh, this news, I feel, will be of, of importance to the king. Uh, he might okay. want to start making a, a plane flight reservation. Uh, mm. But in the near future, to celebrate his birthday, there's going to be a three-day director's cut event thrown by Zack Snyder at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. Uh, it's three days, three films. There's going to be Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, Watchmen, no. and none other than Dawn of the Dead, featuring a Q&A with the members of each film <laughs> and uh this is a one time only event and the opportunity to see uh Dawn of the Dead with Zack Snyder in person might be too much for the king to be able to resist. Well, one, I'm terrified of planes, so probably never gonna happen. Two, I would go there just to wear my original Dawn of the Dead hoodie and have a sign saying, Fuck you, Snyder, you ruined Dawn of the Dead. That would be the only reason I'd go. <laughs> <laughs> so now, what what are the films again? It's Dawn of the Dead, Batman vs Superman, and what was the other one? Watchmen. Watchmen. Okay. It's, it's, it's so a lot of three movies. very underwhelming movies. No, no three hundred. Huh? I would think that uh, that he'd be all up all on that. You know what I mean? You get all kinds of uh, interesting crowd out for that. Maybe, but you know, I had no 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 say in the planning and choosing of these films. Uh, I'm just reporting. <laughs> The news. See, or I could just go out there and like bring my copy of Dawn of the Dead and show it on the screen outside the event. Like, this is the real one, guys. Whoever wants to join me in the parking lot can do that. Don't go watch that 2004 mess. I got the seven. Yeah, whoever right wants here. to watch a good movie can go inside. <laughs> oh, yeah, like Watchmen or Batman versus Superman. I like Watchmen, man. I am a fan. It's of that not movie. bad. It, I admit that it's not bad, but yeah, 
you know, the less said I've about got like the, the th- I've got the three-hour cut of it. Not, not I know there's an, another cut that is actually even longer that has, uh, I guess they, they inserted the digital comic, some pirate shit or something that I guess was part of okay. like, the original comic book run of Watchmen. I don't have that right. version of it, but I have whatever the uh, – Whatever the other extended version is. And again, you know, that's one of those that each time I watch it, I, I just find more and more to appreciate about it. So, yeah, I didn't mind it. It was surprisingly not bad. I mean, you know, I still appreciate the graphic novel more, but for what it was, it wasn't bad. I know that there's a TV series coming out, I think, on HBO uh, soon. Yes. Based on yep. The Watchmen. So, well, look forward to find something about to, that. to replace Game of Thrones since that's going to be ending soon. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, boxing says uh, HBO gave that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so moving on from uh, the superior version of Dawn, as these guys think about, to what else you have? Well, I listen to him admit that. He finally admitted it. That's great. I said what <laughs> you guys think. Not me. Only a matter Sorry. of time, man. Till the truth. Nope, never going to happen. Sorry, I will go to my grave. I will have uh, it etched in my tombstone. Dawn of the Dead remake sucks. Mark it down, monkey. <laughs> I get buried. I'm putting it on my after tombstone. After However long that you live in this life, that's what you choose to engrave on your tombstone. Dawn of the Absolutely. Dead remake sucks. Yeah. And, and all right. Hey. All right. Suck it to his grave. <laughs> Never liked it once. Have at it. Yeah. So, do. Uh, many people have had, and we've talked, there's been a lot of properties of our past uh, that have been slated for uh, the big screen treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people were excited at the Super Bowl uh, commercial for uh, the Are You Afraid of the Dark film. I'm sorry, it's the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark uh, film, and yeah. also the uh, film version of Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark, uh, which had been given an October 4th of 2019 release date. But it has come mm-hmm. to my attention that the Are You Afraid of the Dark film uh, release date, it's been removed and it has been completely taken off of the schedule with zero time frame for a release, according to Paramount. Really? So, wow. uh, sounds like sounds wow. like something happened because it's been completely removed from the 2019 schedule. Uh, there's been no word on whether this is being pushed to 2020 or if it's going to see the light of day at all. Uh, but after having a release date, it's been completely taken away. That sounds like a legality yeah. issue. Has to be because uh, the last thing I read was that there was a director, DJ Caruso. Uh, you know, they were casting, and yeah, they were going forward with the October release. So, like the Gullet said, there's got to be something. Got to be a reason why they took it off their slate. You know, it's got to be something more that we're not, we don't know about. Huh? What do you think, Monkey? <laughs> no, it's the same thing. Yeah, like, what do you think about that? Weird. It's just weird as hell that it just completely disappeared off the radar. Maybe it was I mean, a dog I mean, that's the biggest thing. Is it in cancel status, or is it just in hiatus? Well, there's been no word on whether it's been canceled or not, uh, but I find, I find it's not common for something to be given an official release date and then to have the release date stripped. I've seen many cases where something has a release date and then the release date is changed and maybe yeah, pushed back, back or moved both. up, but I've never yeah. seen something completely wiped from a schedule uh, like this. Although I'm also not checking out every studio's release schedule, but uh, when I read about this, I, I did a little bit of digging and I could find no information 
about it, other than it's just wiped from the schedule. That's bizarre. I mean, hopefully there's going to be an article or, or an interview with somebody along the way uh, that could explain why. Because, yeah, um, I posted a couple articles uh, in the past couple of weeks where they were saying, this is moving forward. This is happening. Not only are you going to get the movie, but they're going to release a miniseries on Nickelodeon uh, in October to coincide with the release. So for it to all of a sudden disappear, uh, yeah, awful strange. Because the- yeah, because uh, I thought they had like the writer that was supposed to be that did, did the It movies was supposed to be the one who was supposed to be on the Are You Afraid of the Dark project. Yeah, uh, Doberman is his last name. I don't remember his first name, but yeah, the guy that uh, co-wrote It, uh, the remake, was behind it. So yeah, yeah, Gary Doberman. And, sorry, yeah, Gary Doberman. Yeah, and but this still, is just weird as hell because like, it's like around my birthday, you know, last month. There was all these articles that popped up about you know all, all this exciting news about the movie you know getting ready to move forward, and, yeah. and now it's all disappearing. <laughs> well, yeah, there's got to be some kind of red tape somewhere that we don't know about. So hopefully, we'll get something you know, official from somebody at the studio or one of the writers or the director to explain why it's been taken off the release schedule. Uh, so you have to stay tuned for that. Um, yeah, I will be keeping my eye on the goings-ons and report back immediately with any news I shall find. I hope you do. Okay, so what else? <laughs> so it's kind of surprising to me all of the talk that has been going on involving critters. Because <laughs> critters? if I remember correctly, yeah, the critters. Critter. The critter Sneeper? Sneeper? Uh so, oh, critters! Yeah, what did you think I said? I thought you, I thought you were talking about the sneeper. Never mind. <laughs> what? Sneeper. I, I toned up. Okay, but yeah, <laughs> Doc, what were you saying about the new critters? Um, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. Cool. What? Cool. What did you? What did you think I was talking about? <laughs> Just go on, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right. Pineapple juice. But anyway, uh, so I. Uh, I have been kind of surprised at all of the talk that I've been hearing involving Critters because, uh, you know, to think back on it, like the first Critters was like a a fun, uh, you know, little monster movie and Critters 2 was entertaining but way more campy and silly than the first one. And then, you know, they turned out some more to like diminishing results. And, you know, I I feel that it's like a lower rung uh, series. Uh, enjoyable as those first two may be, and I've just been surprised to hear all of this talk about like a like a Twitter series and all of this. And uh, so, what I'm reporting on here is we have talked on the show previously about the Critters series uh, mm-hmm. that we had thought was maybe slated for sci-fi, but is now going to be a Shutter exclusive. The Critters series, I think, whatever it was, eight episodes or ten episodes, uh, whatever it's going to be, it's going to be exclusively on Shutter. Uh, yep. But what I read about yesterday, yesterday or the day before, is that Sci-Fi allegedly has shot an entire Critters film in secret, uh, starring none other than original Critters film actress Dee Wallace. Uh, hmm. This movie was allegedly shot in South Africa. Uh, sci-Fi has been super secret about it, but it's known that Sci-Fi has recently shot a film in South Africa. Uh, D. Wallace, How does Murtaugh feel in, about it? <laughs> uh, D. Wallace 
uh, in an interview had, had stated I had recently returned from working on a secret project in South Africa. Uh, so all the talk has been that uh, the sci-fi network is actually, is actually going to debut a, a feature length critters film. Uh, it's just surprising to me how much I'm hearing about critters, uh, given where I view critters in the, in the, the standings of horror franchises. So it's official. Yeah. That it's the Critters movie, or is it still a secret movie? What's that? Is it official that it's a Critters movie, or it's still a secret film starring D. Wallace? Uh, I uh, did they say it was official? I'm I'm fact checking right now. Because that yeah, would be I my just, question. <laughs> yeah, because I just watched the trailer for the new Shutter series, and it looks yeah. like they are just going all out camp on this one. You know, they, you know they're going straight for Sharknado, Sharknado with this movie. I think they're not even no. bothering to apologize. It's just all cheese and all camp. Well, I think you have to with critters. Like you can't take it seriously. Uh, so right now, it's just that uh, Sci-Fi is reportedly uh, making a critters film. Uh, Sci-Fi, Sci-Fi has not uh, confirmed or denied such project, but. Uh, that is the word right now, and the you know the critters, the Shutter Critters series is right around the bend. That's going to be debuting on Shutter on March twenty first. Um, right. So. So that yeah. is definitely coming. I mean, we like the monkey had said the trailer is out there. Um, I do like the fact that they're going practical with the critters and not so much CGI. But I kind of sided with the cool on this one, where I feel like. The critters in this series don't look as good as the ones from the original series, like from the 80s and early 90s. I mean, did you like, think that they would? I kind of thought with the technology that we have nowadays, you could make an impressive-looking critter, practically. Yeah, but I, I – and look, I, I have no idea about the kind of business that Shudder does and what kind of standing that there is based on their lineup of films, which they do have some decent selections. I'm imagining that they don't have a ton of dough because – you know, they're not acquiring tons of top-flight properties for their exclusive right. horror movie streaming service. I mean, I feel like the biggest film they have on their roster is the original Halloween, and it just goes downhill from there. Um, mm. I would imagine that they don't, they're don't. they not putting a, a ton of money into this Critters production. I also don't know if this Critters Well, they're not producing it, obviously. That was the next thing I was going to say. It's going to be a Shutter exclusive. I was going to say that. I don't believe that it's Shutter original content. Uh, that so created. that means whoever but, made the film originally just did not, you know, I don't know. Like, I think that if they could make convincing-ish puppets in the 80s and then using specific styles of lighting and whatnot, make them look realistic right. to a point, which I feel like mm-hmm. they did with the original Critters films, yeah. I would think they should be able to at least be comparable to that yeah. today, if not excel in it, you know, and I'm glad they're not using CGI, it doesn't look like it, you know, or if they yeah. are, we haven't seen any of that yet, but what I've seen is puppetry, which I love, I want to see practical puppets, but I would have liked to have seen practical puppets that at least look less fake than what I've seen in the trailer. <clears throat> That's why I said I agree with you, Agu. I mean, I don't know what the budget was, but it can't be that much more than the movie uh, that came out back in the 80s, that original Critters film. Uh, I can't imagine they had a huge budget to make these uh, critter effects. 
So maybe not a huge budget, but you do got to remember we're talking about a time when Gremlins and Ghoulies and all those films were big, and every studio was trying to come up with the next big one, you know. So yeah, that I was going to say they may have had a little bit more money back then. I was going to say that um, you know this past weekend I was down in San Francisco uh, hanging out in the Haight Ashbury neighborhood, and in that neighborhood there is. There is still a uh, gigantic music store that's called Amoeba Music. Uh, there's oh, yeah. a location in San Francisco, a location in Berkeley, and then a location down in, in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, they sell records, CDs, music, uh, movies, uh, posters, uh, shirts, books. Like, it's like a huge uh, movie and mu- or music first, but music and movie. Uh, retail mecca, uh, you know the kind that's you know for the most part gone extinct. Uh, they still you can sell you can sell you they buy used CDs and records and movies and everything. They have a huge used department where they sell this stuff, and uh, it's a huge huge store. Um, you know we had popped in there this past weekend, and I spent a few minutes walking around the movie section, and. It had been, I mean, I can't even tell you the last time I was walking around in a store that, like, sells actual DVDs in your hand. It's just not something I shop for anymore. Um, <clears throat> but as I was just kind of slowly, uh, you know, walking through the horror section, just in the, you know, in the front of the shelf, uh, they had a DVD that was uh, double disc, double feature, featuring uh, the Munchies and the Munchies Part 2. And I just got a little bit of a chuckle out of that. I love Munchies back when I was a kid. Oh, it was just such a fun, weird, you know, jump from ghoulies. It was just like a weird critters. kind of ripoff on the fucking ghoulies and the critters and the gremlins, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was. Starring, uh, I remember, I can't think of his name, but starring the guy who was like the evil, the evil counselor in Summer Camp Nightmare. I can't mm-hmm. think of his name. Yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, that was in the first Munchies. Um, but yeah, it was definitely an amalgamation. Of uh, all those movies rolled into one, but it was just so much fun, and I kind of wish that people would remember Munchies for what it was. Well, <laughs> it was like a kid-friendly kind of movie in a lot of ways. Like it wasn't violent, it wasn't scary. It was just kind of fun. <laughs> so, so, so what's next? What's on the next? Uh, let's see what is on the next. Uh, and and that's what's happening. So that's what you have. Okay. All right. Uh, so I got a couple things I wanted to talk about. Uh, let's see my notes here. Uh, okay. So I Spit on Your Grave from 1978, uh, probably one of the more controversial films. Uh, I know I've seen it. Uh, the good one, I actually watched it one night many years ago when it was on TV, a late night at his old house. Uh, very brutal in uh, the way they uh, depict rape uh, with Camilla Keaton playing a victim, Jennifer Hills getting uh, pretty much uh, destroyed for 25 minutes in a film. It's pretty brutal to watch. Wow. Um, there were a couple of remakes that came out a couple of years ago, but apparently the original director, uh, Mir Zarchi, uh, is making a direct sequel to his original 1978 film called I Spit in Your Grave, Deja Vu. That's hey, gonna hey, be starring Ken, I'm going to have to... I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to take a pause for just the briefest of moments right here. Yes. Uh, if you think back 
a long, long time ago to exactly one week ago at this time, uh, I have reported on this. Did you? I did. I did not recall that because I just saw this pop up in my feed today. So Yeah, I reported on this last week. Okay, well, then my apologies. I know that. I'm on you know, top of the to... news, man. I take, I'm a newsman. I'm a man of the press. <laughs> okay. Well, it is slated for April 23rd release. Uh, I didn't so have a release date, so thank you for that additional reporting. It is April 23rd release date. of uh, I spent in the grave deja vu, uh, so I will say that. Um, one thing is that this... we did not talk about, I know that well, the, the doctor wait, not wait, brings, so... slow, slow down, I yeah. want to ask. Uh, that April release date, is that uh, theatrical, streaming? Uh, where are we going to be able to see this movie? Digital and uh, physical media. DVD. As far as I saw. So VOD and uh, DVD Blu-ray, uh, April 23rd for this film. So uh, as far as I know, I, I, nothing theatrical. Uh, and just judging from the trailer, I don't think it's going to be theatrical. You know, because so they put a trailer out there, the trailer. <laughs> Yeah, I have it on the Talking Terror Facebook page. Ooh, I'm going to check that out right now. So you can definitely check it out. But it's cool to see Camille Keaton reprising the role of Jennifer Hills uh, with a daughter uh, played by Jamie uh, Burnett uh, playing her daughter, Chris, uh, Christy, which is interesting because it's 40 years after, and apparently the relatives of the people that she killed back in 1978 want revenge now. So they waited the whole 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> it was a... A very slow revenge plot so on their part. <laughs> I know. The fact that they waited 40 years, and they're just now getting around to it. <laughs> so they were doing things, you know, in the meantime. Uh, so that's where they get revenge. Um, but what I did report on was uh, something that's been gaining some traction, which is the Lost Boys uh, CW series. Uh, the pilot episode for this is going to be directed by Catherine Hardwick, who directed the original Twilight movie. We did cover Twilight Eclipse on the show a couple weeks ago. So it would be fun to see uh, Catherine Hardwick take on the Lost Boys. But the Frog Sisters have well, been Well, it's named... because Twilight was just so great. It was amazing. <laughs> but the Frog Sisters, which I had said is the gender bender reversal for the series, uh, have been named of Liza and Cassie Frog. And they're going to be played by Cheyenne Hayes and Haley Sue. Uh, two actors who I have no idea who they are, never heard of them before. Uh, Cheyenne Hayes and Haley TJU. I don't know how to pronounce that last name. So I said uh, Haley 2. I have no idea how to pronounce that. It's got a J in there. So I don't know how to pronounce that last name. But uh, they have been cast. Yeah, there you go. So they have been uh, cast as the Frog Sisters. Uh, I still don't have much of an interest in the, the series. But, you know, it's gaining traction, and I'm sure it's going to have its fans. But, like we had said, you know, if you want to go see The Lost Boys, watch the original movie. still holds up. But if you want to check out the CW series, who knows? Maybe it could be a hit. You know, maybe there's teams out there who don't know anything about The Lost Boys. I want to and see your thank you, King, your talk of The Lost Boys and uh, the, the ghouls referencing of Twilight reminded me of the one thing that I forgot to talk about which I'm happy to report. Great. Go ahead. Marvel. Wesley Snipes. R-rated Blade. Teaming up. Blade is coming back. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Yes. An, an R-rated Allegedly. Blade. 
starring Wesley Snipes to come back. And what they should do is it should be a collaborative uh, joining of universes where Blade, and I said this during our Twilight episode, Blade uh, travels through all of the Twilight films and just kills every character. <laughs> I'd be on board for that. <laughs> i definitely watch that. Um, I'm just kind of happy that uh, Wesley Snipes wants to get back into it. You know, I mean, it's not like I've seen him in anything recently, but it'd be cool to see him come back as Blade because I, I definitely like the series. Uh, like I said on the Facebook page, I like Blade 2 more than I like Blade and Blade Trinity. It's a fucking movie. <laughs> it's there, you know, if you want to watch it. But, yeah, it, it, but as far as I'm concerned, I would love to see a new Blade. I don't know what you think, Ghoul and Monkey, but... I'd be on board. Cool. You go ahead, um, Ghoul. I think you're the har- harder fan here of this series. Uh, again, hard. I feel like there are places to go with the characters. And Blade is a series that I enjoyed. Um, I liked the first Blade, uh, especially when I first saw the movie. Upon repeated viewings of said film, I find flaws in it specifically that are technical. Uh, I feel like the second Blade is the superior film. Um, And that the third movie was just a load of shit. Uh, (laughs) Again, you just kind of can't go anywhere else but that that one. So yeah, I mean, can they can they do something with it? Yeah, I feel like there's an entire fucking roster of Marvel characters that can all deserve R-rated movies, and they don't have to make it a connected universe. Give them their own solo projects and kind of let them be those weird offshoot things. Like HBO has got that uh, what what is it called? Green something or some shit. Uh. Whatever, man. Like Ben uh, Affleck what? and Matt Damon were a part of oh, it. Oh, Greenlight. They, they finance Greenlight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, let these proje- projects be like a Greenlight type of deal where you give right. some, like, you know, a Jordan Peele type of director. Like, hey, here's a character. Make a comic book movie. Let's see what your interpretation is of it. It doesn't have to be part of the MCU. It doesn't have to be part of the MCU dark universe. It doesn't have to be this. It doesn't have to be that. Let it be its own standalone movie just to to be itself. Don't give it fucking sequels. Let them just have a film and be done with it. You know, you want to make another movie? Fine, make another movie. Don't connect it to that movie. And anathema to, to what they want because they like money, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that piggybacks with you know, it doesn't have to be a Disney property. It, you know, it can just be a straight Marvel property. It, you know, you don't have to sit there and go go with the kids and the action figures and whatnot, and just make a fun dark movie. It's okay to do those. You know, and we talked about it like uh, you know we mentioned it lightly for the past two weeks about how you know the comic book universes. There's plenty of them out there with, you know, darker storylines that, you know, would make great movies, especially now that the effects are out there. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Um, but going from Blade the Vampire Killer to Morbius the Living Vampire, uh, from the Marvel standpoint, that movie is still going forward with Jared Blade Leto. Blade Morbius. Dr. Michael Morbius, Jared Leto, who tries. Oh, this is a joker. 
he decided he wants to step in one more time. Wesley Snipes has killed Jared Leto. Uh-huh. I don't know. Um, they are filming right now. Uh, Jared Leto posted a picture on his Twitter feed of uh, a snapshot of him as Morbius in human form. Uh, less and more weeks to go for him on set. I really don't care for a Morbius movie. I, it's one of those properties from the Marvel line where I'm like, all right, it's fine. He's fun in the comic books, but for a movie, I don't know if Jared Leto would be the way I'd want to go, but uh, Ghoul Monkey, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, Jared Leto is Morbius. Uh, I'm going to jump in real quick, Ghoul. That's cool. Um, I, had, I took the last one. What? Yeah, it's just, you know, Morbius just, in my opinion, is not, you know, what we, even though what we just said, Morbius is one of those ones that is not strong enough to be on his own. It's like he had to be part of the whole Midnight Sun storyline to be, yeah. become, become, you know, relevant again. Uh, because when they originally launched him, I think in the early 80s, it was just a total failed project. You know, and he just went, you know, on to occasionally show up in Spider-Man comics from here and there. You know, and it's just, he just doesn't have the story there to, you know, pull this off, you know. But again, who knows? Because if Marvel has this weird way of now that they've got, you know, massive funding, they sit there and take projects that are little known and can make them halfway decent now. Well, if I can interject real quick, here's where yeah. the the king is a little bit lacking on his info with this. Um, Morbius is part of Sony's projects. He's part oh, of the right. Spider-Man universe, so hence this would tie, yeah. if it would tie into anything, would be the Venom movie. Um, right. oh, okay. those characters in this world together. Um, it's not, you know, this isn't funded by Disney or anything like that. Morbius is one of the, one of the many things that Sony still owns. So, but with oh, that well. said, are you happy with Jared Leto taking on the role of Michael Morbius? Nope. I feel like Jared Leto should just stay with like indie projects that are not mm-hmm. mainstream. Like I love Jared Leto in fucking Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Like I didn't expect to see him in that movie and like he turns up in it and he's fucking bizarre and it works because you know, yes, when you first met, like, I don't know, for me anyway, when I first met Jared Leto in my so-called life, like, yeah, I looked yeah, at this young guy and I was like, wow, what a good-looking young guy. This kid's going to be, you know, an actor, you know, of some note one day. And then you started, like, picking him up in other projects, seeing him in this, seeing him in that, and it was like, yeah, you know what, I don't think he's ever really going to do anything major. Um, and I always find, like, he works best when you don't know that he's going to be in something, you know, when you find him in, like, right. a little project, that it's like him just being that quirky, perky weirdo it just seems more suiting for him as a person than when he tries to be something big like the Joker, you know, which just, in my opinion, failed miserably. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. agree. Um, I liked him in Requiem for a Dream and uh, Dallas Buyers Club. I think those are the two films where I'm like, hey, yep. he's great. He's really good, <laughs> you know. But as as Morbius, you know, time will tell. Just like with Venom, you know, I still haven't seen it, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you just have to sit back and watch it and hope for the best, <laughs> hope that they deliver a good product. But 
it's one of those things where, like the monkey said and I said, I'm going in there with the lowest possible expectations for Morbius. Like, I'm not going in there going, I hope this is a great fucking movie. No, I just, you know, I hope it's enjoyable. Liar. I hope it's fun. <laughs> no, by complete, you know, understanding of Morbius is just very low and not going in there with very high expectations. Listen, uh, if they want to do something that's current and they want to do something that's edgy, I'm all for it. Let's take right. vampirism and, you know, let's turn it into something similar to like what we're dealing with with the opioid crisis at this point. You know, there's there's any number of things that they could do with it. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's a matter of them finding a, a an actual story that's going to resonate with people and creating a character which is unknown, which is good, I feel. I feel like that's something strong. In their yeah. side is that nobody really knows who Morbius is, so you're kind of free to create what you want to create with it. Don't make it comic booky. Make it, you know, make it a fucking horror movie. It's a fucking vampire tale. Yeah, it should be rated R, and it should be a vampire tale and very horror eccentric. I definitely agree on that point. Um, but going from Morbius and Blade to somebody that could be a vampire but could also just be a killer, 1977's Martin, directed by George A. Romero. Uh, my film I thought we were going to talk about Brightburn. <laughs> well, <laughs> next week. Well, make that next week. Um, next week. But, yeah, uh, so my pick for tonight is Martin. Martin is about a shy, unassuming boy next door type. He recently moved in with his granduncle Kuda and his cousin Christina. Coda is convinced that young Martin is an 84-year-old vampire that must be cleansed and then immediately destroyed. While Martin's bloodlust is undeniable, is he an undead child of the night, or is he simply a cold-blooded killer? So Martin was a movie I had seen back when I was in high school. Uh, IFC, during October, used to play a lot of old-school horror films from the 70s. Uh, and it was George A. Romero, who I had only known from the point, from his dead movies and from Creepshow. So I was really excited to see something that wasn't a zombie film or an anthology like he had done. Uh, And then when I watched Martin, I was kind of impressed, even at a young age, that it was an ambiguous vampire type story where you don't really know if at the end of the day, if Martin is a vampire or just a killer. So that's why it kind of always interested me. And I wanted to bring it up on the show because, again, Romero was known from his dead movies. He is always going to be known as the godfather of the zombies. And for that, we thank him, uh, the late Romero. But I wanted to bring on one of his movies that is not always known. One of those movies where people don't always go to when they think about Romero, which is Martin, which was one of his favorites. Uh, Out of all his filmography, Martin was one of his favorites. So I'm excited to bring him on the show, but uh, I want to hear what you guys think. So I'll start with the ghoul. What did you think about Martin? Uh, I found it to be, this is my first time seeing it. Um, obviously it's one that I've heard the name many times. I know it's a Romero film. It's not one of his zombie movies. Really didn't know anything about the, uh, the premise of the film at all. Really never had much of an interest to seek it out. So this is one that I'm watching because of the, uh, the show here. That being said, I did find the film to have some interesting qualities about it. It is a, a a fun take on a vampire tale um, where, like you said, you kind of don't really know. You don't know. Is is he a vampire? Is he 
is he not? Um, there are things that lead you to believe both. So, you know, so was it fun? Yes. I didn't have to struggle too much to make it through the movie for an older film. Okay. Right on. All right. Doc, what did you think about Martin? Uh, similarly to uh, what the ghoul had stated, this is one that I had known of but had never seen. Um, I I differ in uh, opinion from the ghoul just slightly. I I felt that this story uh, was very interesting, uh, especially with its portrayal of this character and us as the audience having determine having to determine whether or not he was a vampire or a loon. Um, I liked that idea. No, I know, but but what I'm saying is where I differ, uh, where I differ is that this is another one of those that I feel for watching at this point in time for the first time suffers from what many films of that era suffer, suffer from in, in, in which that has to do with its pacing. Uh, which mm. I'm not saying that I was bored when I was watching it, but I found that uh, it, it just seemed long to me. Uh, um, um, but with that being said, I enjoyed it. Okay. All right. So, uh, Monkey, what do you think about uh, Martin? Hi. Uh, you know, I don't know as much of horror as you guys, so this was my very first time even hearing about this movie. This was my very first time hearing that Romero did anything that was non-zombie, um, with the exception of Night Raiders. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, this was obviously my first time going in, watching this movie, and, you know, talking with the king. This movie is very ambiguous about which direction this movie could go in. So I went in with this movie very straight to the point, very, you know, not trying to find anything deeper in it, and took this movie straight from the cusp as, you know, someone who has a disease where it lets them actually be old but aging very, very slowly. But because they've got this weird little hobby on the side, their extremely religious family thinks, you know, that they're vampires. The, the people that get this disease occasionally in the family, you know, and I found the storyline, that particular storyline that was running through my head, really, really interesting, um, and it was enough to keep me encapsulated into the movie, but unfortunately, it just didn't have, you know, the best execution, you know, be, be, uh, you know, again, maybe because of the filming, you know, because it was in the 70s, you know, um, I very much felt like I was watching an after-school special, you know, about what not to do about being a vampire. It just had that feel of the old Scott Bayo specials, just, you know, because it was all taking place in run-down neighborhoods and just the way it was filmed. And, you know, like the doc had said, you know, the pacing had seemed uneven here and there. You know, so great premise, in my opinion, just not the best execution. <clears throat> but what I like about uh, as we get into the movie the opening segment on the train where you have Martin going from Indianapolis to the town of Braddock which is right outside of Pittsburgh where Romero was from uh, filming in this very old town that's kind of dying in and of itself this old mill town uh, I like the fact that he starts it off kind of without dialogue 
there's really not much given in terms of, uh, you know, dialogue. You have Martin going through this train, tracking down a woman uh, played by Fran Middleton uh, that he wants to kill. Like, he has this intention to kill her with uh, the use of syringes. Um, yeah. You don't know what his intentions are. You just know that he has this in mind, breaking into her, her train car and stripping her and using the syringes on her. And I thought it was just such a unique way to start this movie where it's worthless. Yeah. Like you don't have anything going on except what Martin's doing. And during this whole scene, like I, I just want to say like I've had to do a lot of train traveling in my time. And I just found it funny how little Amtrak has aged from the seventies into today <laughs> for the interior of a train. All I'm going to say is like, I was like, wow, that's an Amtrak train. I, I can tell by the seats and <laughs> the faucets and shit like that. It's the exact same hardware all over the fucking place. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the old you know what's uh, funny? Is this, this movie made me realize that I've never taken, like, a long train ride on a train like that. Because I oh, remember really? one of the things really? I said to the ghoul girl was, like, you know, wow, like, you know, imagine trains when they were, like, that thin, you know, as far as, like, the the pathways between, you know, stuff was, and I guess that must be how they are in trains like that, because I've never been on one oh, they before. Are. I've taken, like, long okay. Greyhound rides and shit like that, but I've never been on, like, an Amtrak or anything to that effect. Yeah, I took a, a train ride hmm. uh, a couple of years ago from New Jersey to Georgia. So, yeah, it was very much like that, where you had a yeah, train car. A... New Jersey yeah. to Boston once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little long of a train ride, but it's still... Something that you should do, Ghoul, if you ever have a chance, because it is an experience to take a train from one location to uh, someplace that's not exactly close by. So you get the whole thing. You know, cramming myself in a tiny little fucking tube with a bunch of diseased other people, man, I'm good. And I'm going to get in my car and uh, and stay healthy and not sick. Sure. Uh, (laughs) But with with Martin uh, intending for his first victim, what I like is the fact that he had said, I'm not going to hurt you. Like, I'm not, you know, this is going to be fine. It's all going to work out. I'm not going to hurt you. It means you no harm. But the next scene you have is him stripping her naked. He's getting down and getting naked uh, and putting her on top of him. Like, he's basically mm. having her in the cowgirl position so he could open up her wrist and let her bleed out and top it. And I thought for early Savini, it was pretty good. Like, I, I had no problems with the effect. Of the bloodletting on top of it. Um, I, I thought it was sloppy, man. I I really did. The, this effect I thought was sloppy as hell. And you know, I don't care if it's early Savini or not. It's like, you know, we we know the trick of hold, you know, holding a razor blade, cupping a blood pump in your hand, you know, and you know, p- pumping while you're going. And it's just, I I thought it was sloppy just because. It seemed like she couldn't get a decent cut. You know, she kept moving around even though she was supposed to be knocked out. It's like, you know, just, you know, I, I thought it was a sloppy shot. The whole, the whole shot, like, you know, I thought it was just sloppy. <laughs> Did you think it was sloppy? Yeah. <laughs> like, not neat? Nope. But... Uh, I just found the coloration to be uh, a little much, and I, I felt like it was yeah. just off by a little bit. But again, I mean, we're Wait, talking the, about the coloration of the blood. Yeah, the coloration of the blood. It was too yeah. red. Yeah, I mean, look, that's yeah. what like in the in you could go it's back and look at uh, films. Yeah, but if you look at films from kind of 
uh, many genres from that time period, you know, that's what you got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, saying, you got the tomato. You got the I'm tomato just saying cheese, I didn't but... like it. <laughs> All right, and I appreciate your opinion about it, and I am just saying that, you know, that's kind of a product of its time. I'm pointing out my observations yeah. on that, mm-hmm. uh, and I hope you appreciate my comments the way I appreciate yours. Mm-hmm. Well, I that, 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 that also Savini becomes kind of Savini's signature recipe is that tomato soup blood that he uses. You know, while uh, well, other people later go to the other stuff, Savini seems to use that one a lot. It's not the tomato soup that he was using. It was just the fact that that's all he had access to at the time, which was 3M. Was tomato at soup. The time. Had uh, 3M at the time. Had, uh, get the you know, the blood red kind of uh, paint mixture. So that's what he used. And he admits it now, watching all his films back in the early 70s, of, yeah, that's all I had access to was this 3M, you know, really kind of bright red blood. And it doesn't look good. And he goes, it didn't get good until the early 80s, you know, when he started getting it right, you know, with the, the blood mixture. So you do get that bright red blood in this movie. But it wasn't a distraction for me. It was just kind of early effects, you know, what they had the budget for. Um, I mean, the movie was shot for 100000 bucks. So it wasn't really shot for a high budget, you know. It's just what they had at the time. Yeah. Now, do you want to t- now do you want to talk about what they did to film the Steam King? Oh, with the train car? Yeah. Yeah, how they had uh, on the B and O Railroad outside of Pittsburgh where they were shooting, they had the one train car to use. So they had crew members on each side of the train, rocking it back and forth. And Romero had two people outside of the train waving lamps in front of the window to make it look like there were lights passing by. But when Romero was filming this, he kept forgetting about the guys that were outside waving the lights. So they would cut and go to break, and these guys would be standing outside for 10 minutes waving the light. And he would be going outside for a smoke and be like, oh, fuck, I forgot about the light guys. Guys, break. And he'd have to go running back inside <laughs> to get warm. And, you know completely just unbeknownst to Romero that they were still outside waving the lights, even though they had gone to break. So uh, Martin, again, is a very much a guerrilla filmmaking style film. You know, it's not a high budget mm-hmm. film. It's not a big crew. There was a crew of 15 people that worked on Martin. So it's not a huge crew, very small. Um, and I think it shows. Yeah. This definitely felt more like night of the living dead than, than anything yeah. else I've seen from Romero's end. It felt low budget. It felt like, him doing what he always spoke about with his films, you know, they always talk about that, you know, Romero was at heart an indie filmmaker. Um, mm-hmm. And this very much felt that for its good so, and bad purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but when you get to Braddock and you meet Kuda, this very old man played oh, by Lincoln Mazel, who at that time <laughs> was a very famous singer. Uh, his daughter you know what was I was actually... going to go with there too, man, and I just couldn't. I couldn't get it out. What's that? Braddock, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, and the whole origin of Kuda in itself as a character, the whole reason that his character name is Kuda was because of Romero shooting outside of a building uh, that was supposed to stand in for the meat plant where Kuda worked, said Kuda and Co. outside. So he goes, let's just call him Kuda. Let's just fucking call this guy Kuda so we could have the name outside of the building. So, again, <laughs> Romero being very practical with the character names. But, but when he meets Kuda for the first time, he's very just kind of standoffish to Martin. You know, just come with me. You'll come to my house. 
the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to cleanse you. The next thing I'm going to do is destroy you. So he's very much in the line of Martin being this 84-year-old vampire that it's his job to destroy. So <laughs> right that, do you think that Kuda <laughs> is just a crazy old man, or do you think that he really does believe that Martin is a vampire? Well, I think he believes. Doesn't mean oh, he's not yeah, a crazy he's... old man. <laughs> you can be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what do you think, Doc? I mean, obviously, he is a crazy old man, but he believes it. Like, you don't go through the steps that he goes through if you're not a believer. Um, that doesn't mean he's sane. I guess that also right. depends on how you feel about, about the character of Martin as well. But right. I know we will get into that. We will. Um, especially because of his interactions with Christine that I want to get into um, with the family albums that he has and going over this curse that's befallen the generations of Matthias's that Martin belongs to and how every generation has to be cleansed and killed. Uh, so, yeah, the monkey uh, question belongs to you. Is Kuda just a crazy old man or does he really think that he's like Ben Helsing and the vampires not be no. killed? <laughs> I'm sorry, but yeah, it's both because <laughs> yeah, it's you know. But I love the introduction of Kuda and how he prepares the house. You know, he has you know bunches of garlic up. He has crucifixes all over the place in in the back in the backyard. He you know has a whole, a whole bunch of Virgin Marys and stuff like that. So you know he's a devout Catholic, that's for sure. You know, with all all of the stuff that's all over the house. You know, but um. You know, I love how he comes in and starts trying to, you know, cl- cleanse him right away of, you know, yelling Nasparatu and, you know, try- trying to put up the cross to him and stuff like that. And 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 establishing boundaries, like straight straight off the bat, I like how they go into, you know, um, you know, you do not have permission to do this. You do not have permission to do that, you know, go- going into the vampire lore. You know, of oh, yeah. setting the boundaries for the vampire. And I'm glad that you brought that up, all the religious iconography that's in the house. That was not intentional on Romero's part. Uh, the house that they filmed the movie in belonged to this woman that her sons, uh, Tony and Pasquale Buba, who worked on the film, she had all that stuff in her house. All that religious iconography was already in there. So it's not like oh. they brought it in there to be set pieces. She was very much a devout Catholic. So oh, when they brought okay. this movie to be filmed, they didn't have to go anywhere to buy this stuff. She already had it. So <laughs> she had the crosses, and she had all these statues. So it was just kind of like a bonus for them to be able to film in this house with all this religious iconography everywhere. <laughs> Again, George Romero doing what he can to save a buck. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> He is going to save as much as he can. Um, but what I liked is the, the difference between Christina, uh, played by Christine Forrest, who a year later would marry George uh, and become his wife, playing the, the cousin to Martin. Very sweet. Is the person that thinks that this is all just in everybody's head. Just trying to make it seem like this is all just a mental illness. Like, Martin, you're not 84 years old. Like, you're a teenager. And, you know, what are you doing, Kuda? Like, he's not a vampire. He's just a fucking kid. Like, leave him alone. So I like her trying to be the moral compass of this film, trying to get everybody to relax and just kind of be a family. Now, now, didn't you say this was her first movie as well? Who's that? 
Christine. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was her first film. Yeah. Uh, she had met and, George when they had made uh, Season of the Witch, uh, which came out a couple of years before. Uh, he had borrowed her house to film it. So he had asked her to be in uh, Martin as Christina. And said, sure, you know, I'll do it. No, um, no, but I just wanted to say, like, for her first film, I thought she did a great job with the acting that was given for her role, you know, of uh, her interaction um, between Martin and then later her boyfriend, you know, and Uncle Kuda. It's like, you know... Her boyfriend was Tom uh, Savini, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. (laughs) Yeah. And I was going to ask you guys, what did you think about that? Seeing a very young Tom Savini, 1977, without the long hair and goatee and beard. Uh, I, I was I was thrown off by Tom Zimini with no facial hair. <laughs> looked like he was ready for porn. <laughs> he always looks like that, <laughs> with or without the facial hair. <laughs> but you know, like uh, the the doc had said earlier about his coffee table book, uh, him playing this movie not only as a role of Arthur but also practical effects. I thought he did a good job as Arthur. Like it was convincing. It wasn't like him trying to act. He felt natural, like in all of his scenes. Yeah, it just seemed like Tom Savini being Tom Savini. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know. Came off like a cool. dick. So, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah. you know, from from what I've met of Tom Savini, that kind of Tom Savini being t- Tom Savini. Yeah, I kinda, when I yeah. unfortunately met him, I got him on a bad bad day or something. I don't know. He just was not I was there in the, with you the, the greatest of moods. <laughs> yeah, I was there when you met him, Ghoul, and I mm. felt so bad. Because when I met him, like, several times before, he was always mm. so nice. But the day that you met him, he's like, yeah, whatever, man. Oh, yeah. Want an autograph or picture? <laughs> That's oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, Ghoul wanted to meet him so bad. <laughs> you know? It felt horrible. But, but, but I, yeah. I, I really enjoy the roles of, <clears throat> you know, Chris. Christina and Arthur, just because their roles are, you know, always talking about getting out of this town, you know, this dying town, you know, and they need to get out, you know, and, you know, I I don't know about you guys, but I like, I've been stuck in that situation where I've been stuck in a dying town, and it seems like the only way to get out is you have to literally get out. Right. Well, that's what you mean by get out. (laughs) And that was the whole on Pettis. Is that Arthur is a was good that the whole purpose of the Jordan town. Peele movie? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> different kind of get out. Um, but yeah, that's the whole thing about Arthur is that he wants to get out of Braddock because it's dying, uh, you know, mill town. There's no jobs. Everybody's in the taverns, just kind of waiting for the mills to open up again. He wants to get out. and He wants to be something. Um, Martin seems to think that Arthur is kind of abusive. To Christina, I never really got that. I just thought that he was kind of a dick, like the ghoul had said. I never really got the vibe that he was abusive to her in any way. I feel like in the 70s with certain films, that's kind of like their calling card for that. You know, rather than the Mm -hmm. movie show you the abuse, you kind of just have to infer it through the treatment of said character. Um, you know, some movies, obviously, you know, Last House on the Left and stuff like that took it to a whole other level. Um, but, yeah, and I don't know. I kind of I kind of felt like the the abuse level was there. I don't As far as Christina went, I really couldn't have cared for the character, dude. I like the MILF character, man, the one that wants to bang him. Yeah, I was going to get to that, too. 
Um, because we do have that uh, kind of B-plot in this movie of uh, Abby Santini played by Leanne Nadeau. And this is her only film that she what? had done. Mm-hmm. And backed out of acting. But I felt like she was so strong in her performance as uh, Abby Santini. Very believable. Very kind of natural. It didn't seem like she was trying to act. It just seemed like she was just playing a character. I feel um, like you said that about the whole cast. They all are. Like, it's... It, not anybody in this movie doesn't seem like they're forcing their performance. It seems like everybody is just there to act um, and doing a great job. And especially Leanne Nadeau, who played uh, Abby Santini, the MILF character, you know, constantly trying to seduce Martin and every turn. Yeah. He's like, I'm not into that sexy stuff. <laughs> I just want to help you we, with it, you know. Yeah. And here we go into the after school special about the, the, the lonely housewife. And it's just as we start to see stuff go happen. Love the lonely starts, housewife. It's my favorite really, fucking one. Uh, I was into it. And, I've met a couple and, and of them. As, <laughs> and as she starts to hire for odd jobs around the house and stuff like that, we start to have scenes happen. And I'll. Like and it totally threw me off because I was watching this with the diva and as things start to unfold, I'm like, holy shit! Did Romero write a porn? Because I've seen so many <laughs> porns open up this way, and I was yeah. expecting, I was expecting things to escalate, but instead they didn't. Instead, you know, Martin turned cold fish because he doesn't do the sexy stuff. Oh, well, he's a really he eventually good. does. I've never done that before. <laughs> he's he's you know? I mean, you got to think that Martin's probably 17, 18 years old, maybe. So, you know, probably never kissed a girl before, never touched a boob. He's 84. What are you talking yeah. about? Tell <laughs> us how old he is. He thinks he's 84 because he's been told that his entire life, that he's an angel's vampire. But, um, but yeah, the interactions with him and her were, were great. Um, when he's fixing her house and she's like, oh, why don't you just come in for a little while? And he's like, got to go running out the fucking back door, you know, just constantly trying to escape her amorous advances. <laughs> well, well, me, I would have been all into it. I would have been like, hell yeah, let's go. We, we shared a moment in front of her furnace in the basement, and then as I was trying to leave through the back door of the house, she uh, she like went to kiss me, like full on on the mouth, and I'm like, yeah, I got to go, honey. That's <laughs> a <laughs> no-no. Like your neighbors your mom's see. That's just wrong. But that's the way I felt with it, you know. Go ahead, monkey. Oh, no, I was just saying, when he went into the delivery, and she's, like, wearing that weird-ass unitard and then proceeds to then put on a, you know, a skirt and offer to drive him into town, you know, and meanwhile, Martin's just staring at it because he's not sure what the hell's going on. I was confused, too, because I thought she answered the door in her panties. I didn't realize it was, like... (laughs) Yeah, it was, like, a weird kind of unitard. Like, there was nothing sexy about it. Like, it just... It was a white unitard. That's you. No, to me, there was nothing sexy about it. Because then when she puts on her skirt and she sees Martin looking at her, she's like, oh, oh. Like, I'm like, what? Is it, <laughs> her, t- is it her tennis outfit? I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Just strapping on that skirt to go to town, you know, and then uh, take Martin with her. Um but yeah, I like to see. Well, I mean, back then, man, you got to have the hella bush, so there's probably all kinds of like 
the hair is like poking out the sides and shit. Probably a lot. You can't even you can't even look for camel toe. You know what I mean? That's straight up anti popcorn. Well, we find that later. Well, we see that later. <laughs> you, you do. Uh, the seventies. Um, but even in the uh, even in the church sequence when they go to church with uh, Kuda taking Martin and Christine to the church with Arthur, and she's sitting in the pew behind him, and she's kind of touching his shoulder and going, hey. And he's like, sup? Come on, Andy. <laughs> like, uh, she's here. Um, and this is something that I know the monkey said he didn't get. I did because I know him. But that's George Romero playing Father Howard, the priest of this church, a very young George Romero. And I don't know if yeah. you guys caught that. Totally threw me off. I did not catch. I that. did not. Yeah, I that did is, not. Uh, and I was trying to look for him throughout the whole film, but you know, like this was one of those periods in the movie where I felt like it was slowing down a little bit, and mm-hmm. I started oh, yeah. to kind of yeah. like again. I was trying to watch this. It was late last night, and I was um, elevated, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what was what with it, and starting to doze off at certain periods. So. Yeah, I might have might have snoozed through part of this. I would guess I would get why people would not realize that's George right from the bat because it's not George like you know him with the white beard, the long hair, and the gigantic eyeglasses that he wore later in his career. This is 1977 George Romero, where he's got the Robin Hood hair kind of hairstyle, um, you know, and dressed like a priest. Um, but when he goes to dinner with Kuda uh, and Christina. You know, drinking that wine. This is very good wine. Oh, yes. He's like, well, better than that putrid stuff they serve at St. Michael's. Like, just kind of making fun of the wine that they had. Um, but you get the sense that Father Howard is the young hit priest coming to this small, dying town, giving the sermons in Latin because the people eat it up. And when Kuda is very much in line with, do you believe in demons? He's like, no. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, but you have Kuda trying to get this priest to kind of go in line with an exorcism, and he's like, "No, I'm not into that at all." Like, that's a joke, right? Like, you're kidding. Like, that's old world type stuff. Like, I'm not into that. Like, you know, you could talk to this old priest. You know, he's into it. (laughs) You know, he's the one that saw the exorcism. I'm into fucking little. I'm into this is PA. I'm into little boy rape. You know, I'm not into fucking exorcisms. (laughs) They're not in Harrisburg. They're in Pittsburgh. <laughs> oh, Pensy. Pen- but the fact that he introduces this old priest that actually is invested in exorcisms, and that's what Kuda thinks is going to happen to Martin. Like, I'm just going to get this old priest to come up, and we're going to exorcise demons. Oh, was Martin. I- I found that scene so fucking funny. It's just oh, my like, God, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things you have to laugh at, with Kuda walking up the stairs with the candles and the crucifix form. And, this well, whole and you're also getting right. those weird black and white flashbacks. And I think this is one of those things where it's like, I wish that there was something just more conclusive by the end of the film to kind of let right. you know whether or not this kid is crazy or whether or not he really has been around for this length of time. I kind of like Monkey's whole thing. Like, maybe he's got some kind of genetic disorder where he is that old, but just frozen at a certain age. Um, 
Yeah, I just wish there was more play on that because here we have all these flashbacks of him, you know, in supposedly some old time with a bunch of people that we're not recognizing at all. You know, I don't know if one of those people is supposed to be a young version of Kuda or if it's somebody else entirely, if we're in another country entirely. I have no idea where. Mm. But supposedly here he is being exercised yet again at a different point. And now, yes, you know, because obviously when you want to exercise a demon, trapping said demon in a room is is not the way to go. You just kind of let him have his free reign to run the fuck out because, you know, he's not going to do something like that. That's silly. Um, And what I also like, not only that, the black and white footage, which I wanted to talk to you guys about because you could kind of take that in a way of like Mucky had said, maybe he is somebody that was around during that time, or maybe it is just delusions of Martin where he believed Mm -hmm. that he was around during that time. Like he has it in his head that he's so psychologically damaged that he does believe that he was around during the old times and he was being hunted by these people. He was, you know, bloodlust. You know, I mean, it's the debate there, you know, whether or not this is reality or it's just his, his imagination. Right. But like you said, see, he left it open. And if we're talking about this was done in the 70s, all right, and he's claiming he's 84, and he's from Indiana, you know, so we're going to say, you know, he hits his teens or whatever in the 1920s, you know, in Indiana or whatever, you know, we're talking about the 1920s, you know, so still that's, you know, pretty a long time ago. If we're going to sit there and go with the route that I went uh, with, you know, just his genetic disorder. You know, or it can just be that, you know, these are things that are running through his own mind, you know, and I like that it's left open for you to decide how you want to take it. And I think those those flashbacks are really kind of amped up during his main kill of the woman at home uh, after her husband leaves on a trip and she decides that she wants to get sexy uh, with another weird barrel-chested guy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Very, very 70s home. Oh, with wallpaper fucking everywhere. Because it's the Even 70s. on the doors. Wallpapered the doors. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. So I, I meant to interject this earlier, and um, there was a sequence that occurs in the film where he is... Uh, I, I forget exactly where. I don't know. You know what? Again, this is one of those where it was kind of like a blur. And the only reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is because it's in my head now and I'm going to forget later. There's a sequence right. later where Kuda is like walking through some alleyways and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And yep. Martin is kind of like following him and everything. And what I actually found from some of those shots and how, the, how it was framed and some of the musical cues that were going on at this point, I feel like a young Wes Craven saw this film and framed some of the things that he did in the original Nightmare on Elm Street based on wow. certain angles and things that he saw there because that's exactly what I saw during these shots. You know, like I literally saw like with the, the, with there's one shot in particular where you're looking down the alley and it's almost shot for shot. All you need to see is Freddy come into, into frame and then start what? doing the arm stretching across the, uh, across the, the walkway. Yeah, especially with the fog rolling in during that scene where they had mm-hmm. all the smoke. And Martin shows up wearing the long cape. And his makeup is all done up to look like a vampire as he's stalking yes, that's, that's uh, Kuda. Yeah, that's the sequence. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, like I said, man, a lot of this movie was a blur. 
where he's got the, the plastic fangs in and he's stalking mm-hmm. Kuda and then he runs up to him, you know, full on makeup, plastic fangs in his mouth. Kuda's like, holy shit, he's really a fucking vampire. Like, no, it's all fucking magic. This isn't real. I'm not what you think I am. Like Martin again trying to tell Kuda, I'm not who you think I am. Like you oh, think I'm a vampire and I'm not. And that is one big thing that we didn't actually discuss though is, you know, how Martin, uh, you know, and his non-belief of magic and calling pretty much all religion just magic, you know, yeah. and smoking okay. mirrors and, you know, he he doesn't believe in religion and he just constantly calls it, it is, magic. Isn't it? Now, yes, yeah. uh, I'm I'm just saying though for story wise, you know, for our listeners at home, <laughs> you know that that's a big part of this movie just as kidding. well. Yeah. Well, you know, Martin I, kind of not. goes back and forth, though. Like, Martin definitely, part of him believes that he's 84 years old. Like, he tells Christina yep. that. But at the same time, he also believes that he's not a vampire. Like, it's all make-believe. Like, he's not who Kuda thinks that he is. And that's why, like the Gould said with an alley sequence, that's him proving to Kuda he's not who he says he is. Like, it's all make-believe. Well, it's all no, it's him proving to Kuda that he's not the... Not cape and fang style right. vampire. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean he's not a more realistic version of a vampire. But um, I, I, that's an interesting point. But like, what we know, like we're not given any context if there is any other type of vampire. Like maybe not the cape. That's a bit, uh, you know, dramatic. But as far as fangs and whatnot, like that is. That's a hallmark of a vampire. Right. But he's drinking but he's drinking blood. He's not only killing yeah. people, it's not like he's just murdering them. He's murdering them to drink their blood right. as a means in his own mind to sustain himself. So as such, you know, you can sit there and say that, you know what, maybe vampirism is real, except it's not the fantastical vampirism of a soulless you know, you know, reflectionless demon. Instead, right, it's just it an actual human being <laughs> that needs to sustain themselves on blood. Yeah, um, and that's perfectly shown in the scene where he murders the couple in their home. When he has the the, the lover outside in the leaves, and he punctures his throat with the uh, the stick, and he takes off his shirt and immediately starts feeding on him, you know, drinking his blood. You know, so you could tell that he he has to drink. He has to get this blood for whatever reason. He needs the blood. <laughs> you know, and I thought that was a great scene. But I also like the juxtaposition of the DJ, uh, DJ Barry, talking to him on the phone of how he's the count. And he's like, "Yeah, all that garlic, that's bullshit. Crosses, bullshit. Mirrors, bullshit. You know, vampires don't really follow that code. You know, we have a bloodlust, but." That's all we really care about. You know, it's okay. easy if you want to be, you know. So, and well, what, the audience what, what, at home eating it up. What about sunlight? Well, it hurts my eyes a little. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. <laughs> and he's got all these people eating it up. You know, they want to hear more from the count. And that's his only kind of access to the outside world is through this phone that he has. Um, and calling into this radio station and giving these kind of impromptu interviews as the count. You know, where he can kind of talk about, you know, murdering these people, but being, you know, completely anonymous. You know, uh-huh. nobody knows who he is. Right, but I also thought this was a great little device 
you know, on Romero's part to just sit there and get some of that inner monologue about what's going through his head, you know, right. without having entire scenes of him walking around and having a fucking spoken monologue going, you know. Which would be but, bogging me down. Definitely. Yeah, and, you said, and you said that was used to cut down on the film because it was originally a way longer film? Two hours and 45 minutes. This was originally supposed to be a two-hour and 45-minute film. Yeah, oh, Romero my God. Only shot it, and it was two hours and 45 minutes. Lord. And Richard P. Rubenstein, who produced it, said you have to cut it down. He's like, this is too Thank much. Thank God for that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Who also played the husband of the woman in the house. Uh, when Martin showed up and said, help me, I'm deaf, he shows up and gives him some change. That's uh, Richard P. Rubenstein. Uh, but he told Romero, you have to cut this down. He's like, it's just too much, and he's like, okay, well, you know, I'll cut it, and I'll do the... Too much, too much, you took too much. Um, too much, you took too much. But Rubenstein was also the same guy that went to the censor board back in the 70s to get the film released. The censor board said, I'm going to give this an X rating because of that bloodletting you had at the beginning of the movie. Rubenstein went back to Romero and said, okay, we have a 95-minute movie, and they're saying that the bloodletting has to go, but we don't want to let it go because it's a good scene. So what do we want to cut to make it down to 93 minutes? Let's a lot. just cut the parade sequence at the end. <laughs> Let's just cut like a solid minute off the parade sequence. We'll hand it back to the censors, say that we did it. They're not going to care about what the content is. They're just going to want to see that we knocked off two minutes off the film. <laughs> Romero said, okay. So they cut two minutes off the parade sequence at the end. They handed it back to the NCAA. They're like, yep, rated R. You're fine. Go ahead. <laughs> that, that is awesome. <laughs> None of the bloodletting was cut out. It was all left in because the MPAA never went back to check that see that that bloodletting was cut out. It was all left in. They just cut it down so it was 93 instead of 95 minutes. So <laughs> Romero finding a way to get around the censor board, brilliance on Richard P. Rubenstein and Romero to do that so we can get an uncut movie. Um, without missing any content. Um, but when finally Martin kind of says to Santini, I'm ready for the sex. Bring on the sex. And they finally do it. I feel like it was what Martin needed, not just what Santini needed, but I felt like it was what Martin needed to kind of satiate his bloodlust. Like I felt like he just needed one quick fuck just to get rid of all that hostility that he had with getting the bloodletting out. Because he was fine after that. He's like, I don't really care anymore. Like, I don't really want to stalk anybody anymore. Like, I don't want to kill. I'm fine. Like, I, I have a source where I could have my outlet now with uh, Abby Santini. You know, well, I, I, mean, I think we find that with, you know, you see periods, and we've, we've read things about serial killers where, you know, a lot of them are you know, committing their murders due to sexualized reasons. And then you'll find that a lot of times when there are long stretches between a serial killer's uh, murders, you know, sometimes one, I mean, that could be because they've been jailed for something else and they weren't caught. But other times, too, it's because they have developed a relationship somewhere or they've gotten married and, you know, in the in the guise right. of either one, not wanting to be caught, or two, having a relationship in which they feel satiated, you know, they don't, you know, commit any more murders, or at least not any that 
get found out about. And that's the the interesting thing about with this film is that he has that with Abby Santini. Um, you know, they have a very kind of a, not a, necessarily a romantic relationship, but a very amorous one. But she when likes he the comes, fuck. To, she needs it, man. But when she comes, when he goes to her house, you know, a couple of days later, and she's in the bathtub, it's one of those questions of did Martin kill her, and he doesn't remember, or did she actually off herself? Because she had been kind of entertaining the idea of killing herself. I don't well, think she, that he did it in that situation, and I think that's what leads to the the irony in the in the conclusion. Mm-hmm. I agree, but. <laughs> Go ahead, Google. Yes. I'm um, not no. going to lie. I think I might have fallen asleep through that because I don't remember it happening. Um, so, I, and unfortunately, with YouTube, I can't like easily rewind and fast forward because I'm doing it through right. Xbox. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I kind of like if I wake up, if I nod off for a little bit, uh, I'm kind of like just stuck wherever it is that I am on the film. I didn't even know the character died. I kind of assumed they broke up. No, she 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 died in the bathtub with a razor blade next to her. Um, and Martin swore to the DJ, "I didn't kill her. Like I I didn't. Like you know, this is something I didn't do. She did it." To oh, you know what? Now that you're saying that, I remember him talking to the DJ and mentioning that. Actually, okay, so yeah. I, I was yeah. definitely awake at least at that point. So, no, I mean it yeah. wouldn't make sense for the character to have killed her. Um, not based on what I saw of the relationship and, and how it was going. She was a depressive personality. I can see her taking her own life. Yeah, yeah. Because, she, because she also had a couple dropped lines here and there, you know, about how she should just end it all. You know, she right. thought about it, you know, but before she started, you know, hooking up with Martin, you know, because I, th- I want to say I think it was during the car drive, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, where she had – you know, drop the line of, yeah, I guess I should just end it all, you know. But during mm-hmm. their relationship, you know, or however you want to call this, you know, um, I wish we had had some kind of time lapse so we knew how long it was. Because, oh, yeah. because you know, while this is all going on, he's still calling to the DJ while he's hooking up with her and talking about how, you know, he sees people that he knows should die, like the mean lady in the shop, you know. um right. You know, and you know he said, you know, talks about how he sees them as potential victims, but he just doesn't have the drive anymore. You know, he, you know, he's letting them go because he lost know, his mojo, baby. He just he discovered the power of pussy. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ma- making out in fields, you know, overlooking rundown Braddock and shit like that. <laughs> But what I mission, what I like uh, about what the ghoul is mm-hmm. what I like what the ghoul said about serial killers is that sometimes they do have a break uh, in their killings because they might get married or they might get into a relationship or something happens uh, where they don't have that need to kill anymore. Martin has that, uh, but after Mrs. Santini kills herself, it kind of comes back where now he's stalking one of the uh, shop customers that's mean to him. And he's thinking, I, I could get her, I could kill her. But it becomes unhinged, where he doesn't have a direction anymore, where he was so calculated with the couple that he had killed. Now when he goes into the finale of the film, there's no direction. It's a frenzy now. Like he just he needs to get blood any way he can. 
So he's willing to kill whoever comes in his way, uh, including some vagrants that are in town. You know, so it, it, I liked how they presented that, where it's he doesn't have a plan anymore. It's just I need to get blood, and that's what I need to do. So I'll kill anybody in my way. Right, and this is where, you know, uh, we have those moments in movies, you know, a lot like, you know, often like mobster movies where, you know, things are going well, and then things start, you know, things just completely unravel here at the end where he gets panicky, he gets desperate, you know, and instead of being cold and calculated and the hunter that he was, you right. know, now he just becomes this, you know, savage animal that just picks, you know, a, a victim at random, and things start to unfold very quickly as we head towards the end of the movie. Um, and here's a question from Doc. Um, do you think that not only Santini's death, but also Christina leaving with Arthur? Because Arthur is done with Braddock. He's moving on. And Christina's going with her, with him rather, to a new place so they could pick up a new life. Do you think that was kind of like the added punch for Martin to kind of get unhinged? and just go on this killing spree? I don't know that it was an added punch for him to go on a killing spree. I mean, maybe there's an element to that to kind of ramp it up, but I feel that, you know, from the start, obviously we get introduced to Martin in a in a very aggressive act of violence, but I feel like the whole thing was kind of a, a deterioration, if you want to call it a deterioration, or... Uh, you know, him piece by piece, like steamrolling through that. So maybe that situation, uh, you know, kind of uh, accelerated the fuse, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I would say that it all of a sudden, like, caused him to explode, because I think over the course of the film, he was, like, exploding in, in pieces at a time. Because um, when Christina leaves, you know, she's very optimistic. Like, I'm going to write you, Martin. Like, I still care about you. Like, you're still family. And he's like, you're not. You don't care about me. You're just going to forget about me. Like, everybody does. And she's like, of course not. But, like, I think Martin knows. Like, she's gone. Like, she's not going to have anything more to do with Martin once she leaves with Arthur to go wherever they're going to go. Uh, well, again, so I, again, I, because if, again, because if you go back to, the, you know, the storyline of he's 84 years old, he's been through this. Several times, you know, he knows what he happened. wants to fuck her. That's the problem. <laughs> he might. Who knows? You know, he oh, he wants to, man. That he is all about that. Well, they did have the shot of him looking at her legs when she's talking on yeah. the phone with Arthur. So you could tell there might be something. Um, but yeah, when everything goes wrong for Martin, you know, with with the whole uh, killing of the vagrants and then the cops getting involved. Um, and then it leads to the whole shootout. It's like one thing after the fucking other with Martin. You know, it's like, I just wanted to kill. You know, I just wanted to get some blood, And but now all of a sudden the cops are involved, and I have to change my clothes, and I have to get out of here real fast. Yeah. And you have him yeah. shooting cops, and, you know, the whole yeah. domino effect. People getting run over by cars that he's in and all that <laughs> yeah. stuff, man. It's like complete and utter chaos. But the fact that he's killing the way that he's killing at this point and it's indiscriminate, it makes you feel like, okay, Martin isn't a vampire. Martin is nuts, and that's that. You know, he's not drinking to feed. Oh, yeah. He's not killing to to survive anymore, um, like could've, which exactly. could have been yeah. thought 
earlier. Now it's just killing, you know, kill it in the name of. Yeah. <laughs> Rage. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly what it felt. And plus, I, I do like the fact that, that those cops were actual cops in Braddock at the time that were not paid for their time. They just were off-duty cops. And Romero just said, you want to be in a movie? They're like, hell yeah, all right. You know, <laughs> you're the guy who made that a living dead. <laughs> so he got two actual cops to get appliances made because the one cop got shot in the head, and that was uh, an early uh, Tom Savini effect using, uh, you know, effects with a little button to make the cop get shot through the head. Which I thought was a good effect for its time. No, it no, and that effect was good, man. I, I'll give it that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Because Savini has some good effects in this movie, you know, because the gunshot, you know, the the um, shot earlier of, you know, stabbing the guy in the neck so Martin can get the blood, you know. Yeah. It was a great, it was a great shot. You know, and, and after all this, after all the chaos that happened that, that night, you know, Martin still comes home, you know, and – you have the shot of the parade, which is completely impromptu. Like, it wasn't planned. Um, the parade just happened to happen in Braddock at the time. And Romero was on break, and this uh, parade started happening. So he told John Antolis, who played Martin, just go play in the parade. Go be a teenager. Go hang out in the parade. So we get these weird shots of Martin just kind of enjoying it. So it's kind of taking it back to him being a teenager. Where you know, maybe he isn't 84 years old. He's just a guy that wants to have fun, you know, and be youthful and enjoy the parade because we see what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's not going to turn out well for Martin in the end, where he wakes up to Kuda telling him, I know what you did. You fucked around in Braddock too long. And, well, <laughs> you know, well, no, he didn't Kuda think I was, was going to find out. Did he? He, said, he said, no locals. Yeah, it was specifically yeah. what he said at the beginning. He said, "Don't fuck with any locals, man." And he must have killed somebody that Kuda knew because, you know, that that was it. That was the last straw for Kuda. Well, Monkey, why don't you take this because you added that last night when we were talking. Yeah, it's just you know he said no locals, um, you know, and said your your soul is damned, and you know just drives a stake into his heart, and we just have this great shot. You know, this this is like oh, you know the, the piece so for good. me. You know, it, it's just great shot of effects, and you know, just seeing the state go in, and you know, him kicking a little bit, and blah blah. You know, <laughs> it's just I, I love the sequence, and you know, the movie just cuts off there. You know, with the end, and then we have this nice little fade of going out of the house while the credits start to roll, then the camera starts to go over top of the house, and we uh, start. To, to hear this overlay of, you know, our DJ again, and people calling in and asking about what happened to the count. Where is the count? Um, and the camera goes over top of the house, and um, you know this weird little wraparound shot that Romero did. And um, then, then we see Kuda in the backyard, <laughs> you know, putting feet over a freshly dug grave, and then yeah. putting the putting the crucifix on top of the dirt and burying the crucifix into the dirt in his backyard. Yeah, it was just that shot of Kuda planting that stake in his heart. When you hear the fucking hammer going down on that stake, like, you know, just that sound, you know, the mm-hmm. hammer hitting the wood. 
you know, and you hear Martin, like, you know, just fighting against it. And poor Grandma Booba, who had to go up to the room when they were shooting that scene and see this happen. Like, she was just mortified <laughs> that they were shooting this scene of blood all over the walls, all over the sheets. She's like, oh, no, I'm going to have to clean all this. <laughs> oh, oh, you didn't what tell you, me that she was movie in... shooting. You, you know, but... she was in the room. <laughs> oh no, she came in during the filming. <laughs> as as Lincoln Mazel was planting that steak in, she's like, "Oh what?" I'm like, "Oh holy Christ!" Like, you know, that is a hot film. <laughs> but Monkey specifically, Kuda, like you had mentioned to me last night, said that he blamed Mrs. Santini's death on Mark. Yeah, was, he, you didn't think I was going to find out. Like, you know, you did this. Like, you killed her. Mm-hmm. Even though Martin was innocent, he didn't do anything to kill Mrs. Anteen. Yeah, but again, it leaves it up in the air, though, because he said, you know, I found out that, you know, what you did to the woman, you know. But like, like you said, it's it's so ambiguous because if he's out of his mind, you know, did he really walk in or did, you know, did he really commit the murder? You know, mm-hmm. Uh, Doc, what did you think about the ending with Martin, you know, getting staked at the end? You know, was it a good finale for Martin, or do you think he should have lived? Yeah, well, that's the, you know, that's what I was referencing uh, earlier, is that, you know, the irony of, uh, you know, him getting blamed for uh, her suicide, which I believe was a suicide. I don't think Martin was responsible. Um, I thought that the, that sequence actually was enjoyable, uh, you mentioned the sound of the stake, but I also kind of, even though the the blood was not the most realistic looking, I enjoyed like the splatter. Wow, you went full robot effect. there for a minute, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that shit sounded like <laughs> his face from fucking Transformers, man. <laughs> like Star I do not know what sound that wave. is that you are referring to, <laughs> but I appreciated the 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 spurt, uh, especially yeah. the second the second spurt. Um, yeah. you know, from when, when the, when the spike was hammered in. So, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what happened. And, and, you know, I, you kind of got the sense that that was where he was heading. So, yeah, to close out guys, do you feel that, you know, do you feel bad for Martin that he got sick that way? Or do you feel like Kuda was right and justice was served? I feel like he just wanted to live his life, and it, you know it sucks that he died. But you know Romero ran out of film and had to end the movie either way. <laughs> <laughs> well, film aside, you know, do you think that that was what Martin deserved? Was a stake through the heart? Well, he was a killer, man. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Kudo just had no idea to what level. That's all. Cool. Um. I think I feel worse over the fact that, you know, Martin was raised or treated his entire life to feel like he was this creature. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how much of that contributed to, you know, him being the way he was? Who really knows, you know? Is it nurture or nature, you know, that really comes down to it? Was he inherently a killer? Was he always going to be a killer? Um you know, if this mental illness was, in fact, part of the family, then, you know, there could have been other members of the family who were also murderers. That's a good well, point. You know, um, society doesn't well, like that. I mean, uh, I'm glad that you guys appreciated Martin. Um, 
definitely it's not a zombie film by Romero, um, but it's one of my favorites. Um, there's plenty of other films that I want to cover, hopefully, in the course of our podcast uh, that Romero did that aren't zombie-related, but this is one of the highlights for me. Uh, but, Monkey, your pick is next week. What do you have for us? Yeah, it's my pick. So we're going to go to the 90s, and I'm excited because it's going to be my first time watching what is considered a practical effects classic. All right? Some of you might call it brain dead, and some of you might call it dead alive. Shock. Either way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to 1990 no, no. Hugh Jackson film, Dead Alive. No, my, my specific reasoning for that is I have to try to track this down because I know I can't find it digitally. I've tried many times. Yeah, I you know I have to I will do the same. I'm sure I will be able to find it and see it. But I had this. You on should a have DVD. it on DVD somewhere. No, I do. <laughs> well, I I, I had it in DVD, uh, and back in New Jersey, I had lent it to someone who I was working at a restaurant with, and then. When I went to collect, because you know that person had they it for said a while. they gave it to somebody else. I remember this. No, whole they said thing. they no. They, <laughs> the, the story the story was that they they had returned it to me already. Um, oh, but I know that that wasn't the case. But anyway, I'm sure I'll be able to find it. I'll be looking forward to revisiting that one for sure. Yeah, it's a good one. Lion old. Your mom hates my dog. Not all of it. <laughs> I can't for the Lord. <laughs> no. Looking forward to talking about that one. All right. So, Doc, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you for discussing Martin, and we'll see you next thank week. You. All right. Thank you. Monkey, you have thank your you. pick, Dead Alive, Peter Jackson. Looking forward to talking about it. All right. And I'm your sexy Simeon saying thanks for listening to tonight's episode and letting me come in your ear. <laughs> All right, <Hi> everybody. <laughs> All right, Ghoul, why don't you hit us with one of those beautiful plugs as we close out the show? Well, I mean, you know, listen, Martin got his by killing people, drinking their blood, but eventually he did find himself a MILF to fuck. Um, if you'd like to find yourself a MILF to fuck, <laughs> then you should go to Bonfire Bead Designs and buy some jewelry. You're go there, um, and, and this way you will eventually have something to give said MILF. And you know what? MILFs love jewelry. They want attention, they want things given to them, and then they want your dick. Um, so if you go to the Facebook page, uh, check around on Marketplace uh, and on Etsy, all one word, Bonfire Bead Designs, you will find all kinds of killer freaking items that will definitely get you pussy. I can guarantee yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get you some. All right. Close this out, cool. Stay scared of Martin. All right. <laughs> Stay scared for Martin, because he's still stalking the streets of Braddock somewhere just outside of Pittsburgh. Um, but, yeah, uh, I was glad to pick this one. Always going to remember uh, Romero, my all-time favorite director. Still miss to this day. I uh, wish he was still with us, still making content. But, unfortunately, he's not. But we still have his films, and I can't wait to talk about another Romero picture with you guys in the upcoming future. But until then, keep America strong. Watch horror movies. We'll catch you next time.